Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 5, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, I would like to dedicate this show to the memory of Frank Forbath and in honor of his wife surviving him, Jean Forbath, two tireless and exemplary social justice warriors whose base of operation began and expanded from Costa Mesa. Together, they founded Share Ourselves in Costa Mesa in 1970, leveraging local resources to provide food, medical care services, school supplies, and the opportunity of an entire region to match their largesse in understanding the dignity of all persons in our midst. The Four Baths operation expanded to several cities, other cities in the county. Their deep commitment to social justice continues in the work of their daughter, Kathy Esfahani, one of my two guests in the first part of this program. Kathy Esfahani of the Costa, Costa Mesa Coalition for Affordable Housing and Linda Tang of the Kennedy Commission will advance affordable housing in Costa Mesa before the door slams shut with the city council's efforts to convert existing affordable units into deluxe housing. The extent to which OC's municipalities are meeting affordable housing goals will also be covered. In the second half, former Irvine Mayor and Council Member Larry Agron breaks down the latest on the comprehensive testing of toxic petrochemicals at Irvine Unified School District's brand new Portola High School. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show, everybody. In Orange County and around the, the Orange County and around the country is a soft sucking sound that is the continual decline of affordable housing. Affordable and low-income units are steadily being replaced by deluxe residences. My first guests have been uh, have between them countless years of stemming this trend and are here today to bring it out in vivid detail and along the way debunk a few of the sordid myths by putting a real face on who's directly affected and how we all are affected by local government actions as well. Let me now introduce them. Kathy Esfahani's uh, the first uh, guest, her exemplary upbringing in Orange County is from a socially active family, which I've already mentioned, the four baths, from whom she was, yes, spawned. After completing her BA in English at Loyola Marymount University and her law degree at UCLA, Kathy practiced law at Rutan and Tucker as a litigation attorney and now serves as a senior judicial attorney at the California Court of Appeal, 4th District Division Three. She achieved the number 10, count of that, that's pretty high up there, ranking in the Daily Pilot's 103 top newsmakers in 2015, and more recently, the M. Catherine Bear Dharma Commitment to Public Service Award, that was last year, at Chapman University's Law School. After her constant community involvement in public law and public education around Orange County. 
Joining Kathy is Kennedy Commission Project Manager, Linda Tang. She completed both her undergraduate and graduate degrees at UCI's Urban and Regional Planning Department at the School of Social Ecology. Take note, aspiring public policy um, professionals, this is, this is where you could be going. And I'm, uh, she's living proof of, of the satisfaction in, in the public policy arena. She's worked at the beginning of, uh, well, let me back up. Linda draws upon her experience in the housing development industry to engage community participation and spread awareness of affordable housing needs in Orange County. She's worked at the beginning of a project in Santa Ana, building broader community engagement in the city, supporting the research and education efforts related to affordable housing and redevelopment. Some of her work and commitment is informed by her personally benefiting from housing stock that she describes herself as affordable housing. Linda Tang joins me in studio, and we have Kathy calling it in uh, nearby in, Costa, Ma in uh, Costa Mesa today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kathy Esfahani and Linda Tang. Well, thank you. It's great to be on the program. Thank you, Claudia, for inviting us um, and giving Kennedy Commission an opportunity to speak today. Well, we need you both because it's this that's that sucking sound is not that soft. It's really a it's a kind of a thundering uh, cl clamor of uh, of trends that are leaving too many bobbing in a, a very violent wake. I must I, I'm that vivid for a real reason. Well, Linda, along the way of your briefly telling us about the Com Kennedy Commission's charter with increasing the regional housing opportunities. How about a definition for what you mean precisely by the term affordable housing, what it looks like and where it's found in Orange County? So for the Kennedy Commission, we were established in 2001, and this is our big year this year. We're the big 1-5. Um, one of our co-workers said that it's our quinceanera. Um, we were oh, turning 15 this year. <laughs> it's really exciting, and we're named in honor of Ralph Kennedy, who is who was a resident in the city of Fullerton. And back in the 80s, him and a group of individuals um, met together and formed a homeless task force group to address homelessness in Orange County. And from that, they realized that a solution to homelessness is permanent affordable homes. So from there, the Kennedy Commission was established, <coughs> excuse me, and for the Kennedy Commission, we try to partner with um, with cities and jurisdictions to come up with better policies and programs to advocate for the development of affordable homes. Um, also, more importantly, we outreach to residents and um, try to educate them, especially the lower, in lower income residents who have been left out of the planning and development um, process. Um, in their city, and they're not able. They're not in a position to attend meetings. They're they've got. They're working on their third, getting to their fourth job. Exactly. To, to personalize this completely. Exactly, and so we just try to educate them of their housing rights and build their capacity and empower them to advocate on their behalf at um, meetings that we were saying, like the council and planning commission hearings that are held at night. So in terms of affordability, it's a very subjective definition because what's affordable to me may be different um, to someone else sitting next to me or across from me. So the general term is for, afford for affordable is spending no more than 30% of your income towards housing, and that includes utilities. And it used to be 30%. It's gone up to 40 That's a sign of the times. Yeah, because you want to include transportation also because transportation costs is really expensive. And so there are 
income limits or income categories that affordability can be defined. And it's split up into five categories, extremely low, very low, low, moderate, and above moderate. And what the Kennedy Commission does is that we try to focus on those who are earning um, the low, very low, and extremely low income categories, especially the extremely low, because those are those families are the ones who are earning about minimum wage or less than $10 an hour. So that translates to about $20,000 a year for a household. And in order for their rent to be affordable or considered to be affordable, it has to be around $500 a month. And finding rent for $500 a month in Orange County, that's almost unheard of unless you want to double and triple up with someone else to make sure that you have you can achieve those affordable rents. Anything just to add to that, Kathy? Well, I mean, that's what we see in Costa Mesa is severe overcrowding, where families are doubling up or living in garages because they can't find affordable rents. <sighs> okay. So, and I must, I must submit that we know in University Hills what affordable housing does for the standard of living. We can witness the good life lived upslope of the University of Irvine campus with a mix of rental apartments, condominiums, townhouses, duplexes, detached homes, and yes, some very deluxe homes. So the uh, standard of living is drives, the, the affordable housing component in a household budget is driving a standard of living. And with the standard of living, it's driving household uh, viability, uh, how well students are performing in, in their schools, uh, er, getting st credits established. There's all sorts of thing, functions that are going on with that, that standard of living uh, is driving there. So, Well, you know, Claudia, you're really right, because if families are paying too much for rent, then they don't have money for medicine. They don't have money for food. They don't have money for clothes. So it takes it's such a huge bite out of the family budget that families are really suffering. So it, it, you're right. It, it definitely um, affects uh, the whole... Um, you know, the life of a, of a community. So let's go back to how, um, Linda, is the county performing in affordable housing? How are the various cities addressing the commitment first at the planning level, the, the, el the housing element, and then in the actual success rate in committing builders to build affordable housing in the development order that they're negotiating with the city planning commissions and the city council? So it's not hard to just open... Um, the paper and the OC Register or the LA Times to see that there's headlines that shows that, you know, there's such a lack of affordable housing. Rents keep increasing. People just can't seem to find housing that are affordable to them. Um, you know, I hear people say that Orange County is expensive. And there is, and many of you who live here know it. You breathe it. You live it. And that uh, there have been sayings that it's very, very expensive to be poor in Orange County. Orange County is among the top 10 least affordable metropolitan markets in the nation. And the fair market rent for last year for a two-bedroom unit in Orange County was close to $1,600. And how does that translate? Basically, you need an annual income of at least $64,000 per year to be able to afford um, that two-bedroom apartment. It was like about, th I saw in, also on your website, it's about a $31 per hour salary. Yes. Yeah. So get, the, get used to that, everybody. Yeah. So the hourly wage to afford that two-bedroom apartment is at least $31 an hour. Right. Okay. And, you know, this is a huge burden, especially for minimum wage, minimum wage workers. They have to le work at least more than three full-time jobs or at least 150 
150 hours a week <laughs> to be able to afford that unit. And, you know, Orange County, there's such a huge shortfall of affordable housing.、Um, in terms of supply, you know, the demand is so high, but we just don't have that supply. According to a、um, report by the California Housing Partnership Corporation,、um, Orange County has at least a shortfall of over 100,000 homes that are available and affordable to extremely low income renters. Only 18 out of 100 low income families are able to find affordable homes in this county. And、wow. it goes beyond that. It's just not just the lack of supply, but also the increase in rents. Last year alone, local rents increases for large apartment co- complexes went up by close to 6%. So it keeps rising up every year. And another issue is that the wages are not keeping up.、Um, according to the Economic Development Department, Seven out of ten most job openings in Orange County have hourly wages of less than $12 an hour, which is far below the housing wage of $31 an hour that we were talking about that you need to afford a two bedroom apartment in Orange County. But for Orange County, we do have housing plans、um, called the housing element, where each jurisdiction has their own housing element that identifies the existing and projecting housing needs for all economic segments of the community. Um, and that each jurisdiction has to accommodate its fair share of the region's housing needs by income levels. But it's important to note that the jurisdictions are not mandated to build the homes, but they just need to ensure that programs and policies and zonings are in place for developers or nonprofit developers to come in and build the affordable housing. And typically, Um, jurisdictions meet the goals or the housing needs for the moderate and above moderate income households, or for like, or they really build luxury condos or the duplex or deluxe condominiums that we were speaking of、right. earlier. But, you know, in terms of meeting the goals for the lower income segments of the community, you know, they're failing to meet that need. Can I jump in for a second? Kathy, please. Interesting.、Um, In Costa Mesa, we've had a, just a boom in housing development the last couple of years. Yeah, you, you know, can as, see it. You know, picked up after the, after the end of the recession. And between 2012 and 2015, there are tw- over 2,600 units that have been in various stages of development in the city. Do you know how many are affordable? One. <laughs> One、That's、out of、so、over twenty six hundred. So when Linda says that you know the cities are meeting the need for upper income families and households, that's right. That's happening in Costa Mesa. But there's at least in my city, there's no attempt to meet the needs of of low income and very low income people. And so there's. I mean, the state does have a. It does compel the local jurisdictions to have the mix. It's addressed in the. The, the housing element. And but then there's, there's the step, and this is where the, our activists here today are involved with it's the, the actual negotiation, the leverage that we be applied when uses are, be, are changing and、uh, caps are raised in terms of th- the density of the units uh, uh, permitted in those discussions. So let's, let's move into that. Kathy, last November, listeners might recall that the city of Costa Mesa set out to change its general plan. To convert motel units to luxury apartments with no affordable housing component. What do these motel units offer in a way of low income housing? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Motels in Costa Mesa, like everywhere,、um, 
fit a or fill a, a really crucial need for transitional housing. Um, motels are last resort housing for poor people. Um, People desperately want to stay sheltered. Um, you can imagine a family um, with children. Um, if the parent has lost a job or been injured on a job, and all of a sudden they're behind on their rent and they're threatened with ev- eviction, and the last thing they want to be is out on the street. But sometimes it happens um, because of uh, you know economic uh, crisis in the family. And where do those families go? They move into a motel um, because because you can pay by the week. You know, you can scrape money together to stay sheltered. And um, so motels in Costa Mesa have long um, filled that need. There are 15 independent motels in our city, mostly along Harbor Boulevard and Newport Boulevard, sort of the, sort of the core of our downtown. And um, we have had a city council majority in the last couple of years that <clears throat> see those motels as problem motels, and the fact that they meet the need for housing for low-income families is not of concern to the council. What the council sees is property that could be put to a, what they see as a higher use, and that is, you know, high-density market-rate apartments. It's a very, uh, you know, pro-development majority, and they have done their best to really push these motel owners to change the use of their property. And so what's happening and what, you know, as you mentioned, Claudia, back in November, the city council has been offering incentives to motel owners to convert their properties to apartments. And the Costa Mesa Motor Inn, which is the largest motel in Costa Mesa, it's got 236 rooms and is the place where families go. There are playgrounds there. There are, you know, areas where the children can gather and play safely in a big, you know, a a big center park area. And the motel and the owners have been convinced to change the use and build luxury apartments instead. So they presented plans to the city to create very high-density apartments in 50, I think it's 54 units per acre, which is way higher than the zoning allows. And But what's interesting is the city has refused to try to get any affordable units among the, you know, the two, I think it's 224 units that are going to be built. Zero will be affordable to low or very low-income families. So none of the current residents will be able to remain at the at that motel or at that when it when it's converted to apartments and so our housing coalition fought very hard to get the city to include an affordable component in the development and um, the city passed the project approved it without um, without requiring that and now they're sort of trying to broaden this, uh, um, take it to um, all the motels in Costa Mesa. And there's a a general plan amendment that's being proposed right now where the density is going to be increased to 40 units per acre, um, which is a big increase over um, the high-density developments in Costa Mesa can only be, Linda, correct me on this, is it 20 20 units? It's 20 is the current amendment. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's the current zoning. 
but so the city is offering this incentive. It's called a residential incentive overlay, and it's just for the motel properties, where they're going to allow the motel owners to put 40 units per acre there because they want them to change the use and, you know, have these, uh, you know, market rate luxury apartments. And what will happen is all the people who are currently relying on motels for housing will be displaced. They won't be able to remain there, and the city is not building any new affordable house for, for them to move to. So in terms of numbers, yes. I, I mentioned there's 15 independent motels. Right, right. You said 236 rooms in the, the one that's, that's where the challenge is in the one. Yeah, but, one. But so how many units overall? Over 789 rooms. So 789 rooms where those are households. That's not, right. I mean, that's like at least two people usually per room, sometimes four and five. I mean, because there are families with children that live mm-hmm. in these motels. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of people who will lose their housing if this general plan amendment goes through. Well, there's so many directions to go with this. At first, I, for those of you, if you're you're just tuning in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, where my guests are Kathy Esfahani of the Costa Mesa Coalition for Affordable Housing and Linda Tang of the Kennedy Commission, advancing the need for holding the line and building up the affordable housing stock in Orange County. We're talking about what's going on in Costa Mesa in particular with the doubling up of units permitted per acre and the doubling down and eliminating of affordable units in the process. So we talked a little bit in preparation of the interview, Kathy. We looked at the the trends, the employment trends in the area. How does this the available housing stock match up with the service sector jobs that are envisioned to increase in our region. Yeah, it's really interesting. There um, was a uh, a survey by the the Employment Development Department, and they looked at the the job openings to be expected in Orange County from 2010 to 2020, and they're almost all service-related, so retail salespeople, Waiters and waitresses, cashiers, food prep service, office clerks, laborers, freight, stock, material movers, all of these make about, you know, 9, 10, 11 bucks an hour. And as Linda was saying, you need 31 30, bucks an hour. Yeah, 31. Um, and that's uh, Orange County rents were the average was 1600 something. Costa Mesa is higher. The average asking rent in Costa Mesa is $1,840. Actually, that was in January 2015. The Orange so County Register up. reported that. Yeah. So that's even higher than in um, Orange County as a whole. So the, the people who work in our community, the people who service us at restaurants and, and in retail stores, they are not able to afford the rents in, in Costa Mesa, and it's only going to get worse when we lose... Boy, 786 rooms. Um, those are more people flooding the street looking for affordable housing that they won't be able to find. And people are already hammered with the whole uh, increase in transportation. And we can talk very briefly, the two of you, what, what the result of pushing people toward affordable housing means a longer commute for them. It means more traffic. It means more there's environmental consequences to that. Productivity can't can't improve. It's got to drop off when you're dealing with larger commutes from for the service sector employees to get from A to B in a, a longer stretch. So, um, Linda and Kathy, both of you, especially Linda, you've taken the time and care 
to become acquainted with the residents threatened by the loss of affordable housing stock. When the city council vilifies those residents as slum-dwelling prostitutes, drug dealers, or worse, whom do you actually see living there? For for me, I've gone to the Costa Mesa Motor Inn and gone door-to-door to talk to residents, to let them know what's happening, because a lot of them don't know what's happening. And you know what? If you go there on a weekday from like 5 to 7, you'll see a lot of families and children outside playing. There's definitely a lot of um, kids, teenagers hanging out. You know, um, the issue with the council is they paint everybody with the same brush, but that is not the case um, at every single multi development. There might be some bad seeds here and there, but you know, when it comes down to it, there's a lot of lower income families, a lot of working individuals who are telling me they don't have any other options, <coughs> excuse me, housing options in Costa Mesa because Costa Mesa is so expensive. And that, you know, because they have maybe prior evictions or bad credit that they have. Or they were hospitalized or all kinds of things in some cases. That's correct. I did meet one resident who said she, because she had um, issues with her heart, um, that she had to go into surgery. And so it just, you know, took up all her savings and she didn't have any more money to save up because her insurance didn't cover it. And so she ended up living at the motel because that was the only place she could go. Yeah, people wonder why, do, why, why are they living at motels. But like Linda said, if somebody has a, a medical crisis and they lose their savings and they get evicted from their current apartment, they can't pull together the security deposit and first right. and last month's rent so to wow. move into a new place. So they move into the hotel, to the motel, thinking it will be just a few months. But it can be so hard to scrape together enough money to get more secure housing that they end up staying there. And the important thing to know is these are working people. These are not low lives. These are people who have jobs. You couldn't get the motel unless you have software programmers and all that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. I, the really interesting thing is I have met so many people in our sort of our campaign to help the residents of the Motor Inn and try to preserve their housing. So many people have come up to me and confided that they lived there for a time. They lived there for a couple of months when they fell on hard times. Yes, and I'd, I'd like to direct listeners to the Costa Mesa for all.com website with videos and affordable housing facts that put even more context in the lives that that Linda and Kathy are talking about that are affected by the displacement of affordable housing. And Ron, in episode six, I could steer you to, he sums up every aspect of this whole affordable housing issue. He summed it up in less than two minutes. He's got yeah. gentrification, uh, the whole economic development piece. He's got, he's got all there. And I want to say hats off to Kathy's son, Ryan, for his part mm-hmm. in producing these fine pieces along with the other activists in the coalition. So I just want us, let's get a vivid idea what happens when those 786 rooms go away. Where do those people, do you think, where they're going to end up? If they're lucky, they may be able to move in with friends, so then we'll have more overcrowding. If they have no one they can move into, they may live in a car. They may end up homeless, or they may have to live, uh, move out of the area to try to find housing. And that uproots children from their schools. It uproots people from their communities where they work and where they've lived for years. So it's a, it's a really devastating thing. Mm-hmm. 
So, Linda, when you meet with them, I mean, are, are they watching the news? Are they aware that the trends are, are very foreboding for them? Well, definitely. They're trying to follow up with reading the newspaper or whatever the information they can get. Currently, they're saying that, you know, management is not giving them that much information as to what's going to happen um, to the development. But they're really, really concerned about what's going to be their next steps. They don't know where they're going to go. A lot of them have said that they've started looking and they're realizing how expensive the rents are because a lot of the residents who are living at the motel have been living there for, I met someone who's lived there for 15 years, another person who's lived there for nine years. So, wow, really? Yeah. So oh my goodness. Yeah, they lived there for a long time and others have children and the rents are about um, 900 since, it, you know, they've been living there for so long. It could be around, it can range around $900. But they're saying, you know, where are they going to find rents for $900 a month? It's going to be really difficult for them, especially the families with children. They're just really concerned where their kids going to go. Are they going to be able to go back to the same school that they've been going to? Because rents around that area are just so high and just out of reach for them. So it's a, it creates this horrible catch-22 of, of this destabilizing kind of household income, uh, household budget because of the, the affordable housing mm-hmm. quotient there. Yeah. And I don't think the residents of the other motels know the risk to them. I'm not, I'm not really? sure they're aware of the general plan amendment that's being proposed. So our coalition is hoping to get the word out citywide that um, the Planning Commission is meeting next Monday night, um, April 11th at 6 p.m., uh, to discuss and, and vote on the general plan amendment, which will offer this incentive to the motel owners to change the use of their property and build luxury apartments without requiring any affordable units. So we're hoping people come out and um, demand that the city require at least 15 percent of the of the new units be affordable um, before giving away this this density bonus. So that's April 11th and what time does it start at the city council? Um, It's um, six o'clock in the council chambers. Okay, folks, and uh, I, for those um, folks, if you want to go to another place instead of some mind-numbing uh, videos or shopathons <laughs> online, you can go to the KennedyCommission.org website where you will find a tab for easy ways to take action. But the, the, the first place to take action is attending the April 11th meeting, and it's an old line about 85% of life is showing up. You're going to learn a lot by attending this hearing and you don't hesitate to pick up one of those three by five cards, comment cards and say Mm -hmm. you'd like to say something on behalf of a a constituency that is not in a position to be able to advocate for themselves with their overextended, you know, workaday schedule. So this is a very good time to put out some additional dates too for what the coalition is planning and what the Kennedy Commission is planning in terms of raising cane, raising funds? (laughs) Well, um, we don't know when the issue will be coming to the city council, but we will advertise it once we find out. The first step is the planning commission meeting this Monday. And you can read the, I mean, the tea leaves are pretty clearly dried and in the cup. We can all tell what's going to happen, right? Let's let's be proactive in this coverage now. We know what's going to happen. There will be an approval. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've been fighting for affordable housing in Costa Mesa for nine years. We haven't won anything yet, <laughs> so, but we're, we're fighting still. Sometime, sometime the city council will hopefully see uh, the justice of the cause. 
Does but if it, people turn out, you know, that'll make a difference. Slowing things down or, yes, trying to extend the, the, uh, the consideration time to another planning commission meeting or um, simply just creating, creating facts that can be used as um, campaign tools. Mm-hmm. There's an, there is an election in November. Yep. And uh, is there any way short of changing the composition of the council that can reverse the trend, Kathy? Oh, gosh, I don't know. If the mayor and his allies see people concerned about this issue, there's always hope. Yes. We advocates can't give up hope. We've got to. Okay, well, I, I know that both of you have lots to take care of today in your respective lines of work, and I I really applaud both of you for holding line. I guess I'm going to give Linda the last word here on where... She's taken her urban planning credentials. I just want to give her a moment to talk about uh, what she's learned about herself and the kind of satisfaction in public policy and public advocacy as we close out the show. Well, thank you. Uh, You know, I've been really lucky to be at the position I am now, uh, being able to go to school at UCI, doing my undergrad and graduate degree here. So it's been great that I'm here today, coming back to my old school. It's great to see what's happening here. But, you know, it's, it's, it's taken me a road where, you know, I, the reason why I'm in this it, with the Kennedy Commission is because of the work. The work is so rewarding, um, knowing that I get to work with residents, especially residents, Kathy, who just really is striving to change the quality of life for a lot of lower-income families. But I, I guess the biggest takeaway from today is, you know, there's a housing crisis, and we need to all come together to advocate for more affordable housing for a lot of the families because if we don't say anything, nothing's going to change. It's good for the directly benefiting residents, and it's good for us to give us the opportunity to say we do live in a civilized society. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. That's all the time we have. Kathy and Linda, I honor your work, and I thank you in the same breath for your precious time with us today. That was Kathy Esfahani of the Costa Mesa Coalition for the Affordable Housing and Linda Tang of the Kennedy Commission Advancing the Need to Maintain Ample Affordable Housing Stock in OC. We'll be right back after a station break with former Irvine Mayor City Council member Larry Agren who's kept his sights on what might lurk underneath the brand new Portola High School. Thank you ladies very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Angelique Kijol, give me shelter. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is former Irvine mayor and city council member Larry Agron. He first served on the city council from 1978 to 1990, including six years as mayor. He later was elected back into office on the council in 1998, where he served until his last term ended in 2014, either as a council member or as mayor. As council member, Larry Agron served as chair of the board of directors of the Orange County Great Park, the entity designated to oversee the design construction operation of Great Park. That is, has been radically undone in so many ways. Uh, I will just say as a parenthetic but emboldened in fonts note, 
Larry has provided vision on all fronts of public policy that make it very important for people to track back what Irvine is most proud of. You can trace it to the activism, activist leadership that Larry has posed. I'm no shill for Larry Agron. I'm just grateful that there are things on the books that they exist because of Larry's vision, and that's because I benefited from it, not because I think I need to do this for Larry. So as, back to his introduction, Larry's also served as legal counsel for California State Senate Committee on Health and Welfare. He's taught legislation and public policy at UCLA School of Law and the UCI Paul Mirage School of Business. He's been on the show a number of times to cover the Great Park issues and uh, when he's been a candidate for re-election. And I'm welcoming him back today to talk about the Irvine Unified School District Portola High School site. Welcome back to the show, Larry Agron. Well, thank you, uh, Claudia, and thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, it's because when we're dealing with another election cycle, election outcomes are close in terms of how many votes determine this outcome, and the outcomes have been very pronounced in their changes from 2012 and 2014 elections. So it's a public service announcement to say we've got to watch what leadership looks like and whether we're willing to dispense with uh, participating in the electoral aspect and lose out in what we are beneficiaries on the municipal level. So Larry, would you first give us a brief, a very brief history as to how the Irvine Unified School District got to where we are today? Well, the need for a fifth high school in the Irvine Unified School District became uh, evident as we moved through the Great Recession and there was a resumption in growth and development in the city, it became evident that a, a fifth high school, comprehensive high school, would be necessary. There were a number of sites that were possibilities. Clearly this had to be in the northeastern part of the city, uh, and ultimately there were about three sites that were being looked at actively. One was on land by the owned by the Irvine Company. Uh, another possibility that arose was in the Great Park, at the edge of the Great Park. And then finally, there was a site, uh, land owned by what we now call Five Point Communities or Heritage Fields, or in an earlier iteration, Lennar, land owned by them, that ultimately became the site for the new high school. It was a poor site. I described it at the time as the worst possible site in the city of Irvine because it was uh, less than half a mile from just about a thousand yards, actually, from a, um, a jail that is growing tremendously in size and presented certain problems with traffic and socioeconomic problems and so forth. It also was on Irvine Boulevard which is a high-speed roadway, and the high school would be fronting on a high-speed roadway, uh, definitely a frowned-upon uh, characteristic of that site. And then finally, it was a site that was on what was Superfund cleanup 
land, land deemed to be contaminated with toxic chemicals, and in close proximity to a toxic waste dump that was used by the military that was just 750 feet from the proposed school site. Notwithstanding all these considerations, the school board very foolishly chose that 40-acre site. They've since proceeded Again, notwithstanding uh, evidence of toxic contamination uh, forthcoming, including as they began to build the site, um, they approved it, they built it. As they were beginning to build it, they came across huge uh, areas of toxic contamination, kept going forward saying, well, it's going to be okay. Well, it's not okay. And now we're at the point where a $300 million new comprehensive high school has been built, not yet occupied, supposed to be occupied this fall, and yet uh, we're testing at this very belated date for toxic contamination uh, that uh, may be site-wide toxic contamination uh, that is um, just a tragedy in many, many ways. Well, Larry Agrin, why do you think the school board has kept such a narrow focus on completing the high school on a site that historically had hazardous materials released. We're aware of the sites, other sites in Los Angeles where the toxins were eventually discovered at a greater expense to public agencies because of the timing of the discovery. Well, it's a bit of a mystery. I tell you the stubbornness of the school board, the foolishness, uh, the determination, apparently, to justify previous decisions. They entered into an agreement with Five Point Communities and with the Irvine Company so that they got the land from Five Point Communities. Um, major developers have to contribute money or land to the construction of new schools, and that's what... Uh, what they did in this instance, the Irvine Company contributed money, and Five Point Communities contributed this land. They contributed, uh, I'll just be honest about it, probably the worst piece of land that they owned, uh, and uh, pushed the school board. The school board uh, bought it, quite literally, and once, um, once that decision was made and things were underway, uh, they just dug in deeper and deeper, even as evidence mounted of serious toxic contamination issues. Well, what do you say to critics of the your letter writing campaign starting from around, I think it's 2012 or 2011, of which you've been a part, that now the California EPA and the Department of Toxic Substances Control uh, March response has been of a, vid- a bit of a vindication for you, no? Well, it has. Uh, and, and we're grateful for that. The state has largely been asleep at the switch, just rubber stamping uh, whatever it was that the school district was submitting by way of environmental studies, um, studies for toxic contamination and so forth. I mean, the fact of the matter is that to this date, there was no testing in the interior of that 40-acre parcel. The None interior 35 acres, there was no testing for toxic and cancer-causing uh, uh, 
volatile organic compounds like benzene, naphthalene, toluene, and many more. None. And now they're doing that. They're probably doing that testing today by order of the state. The state was slow and asleep at the switch. I'm grateful for the fact that they belatedly have stepped in, but uh, here we are uh, doing testing that should have been done three years ago. Well, I guess what the listeners might be interested in, are, are, are we imagining there will be some men hammers opening up in the middle of the vaunted uh, new assembly rooms or in the middle of the library underneath the whatever improvements are, are made on the inside? I mean, what, what does that involve, this testing to, in the areas that hadn't been tested prior or hadn't been tested for, as Harvey Liss, who's been on this show about a month and a half ago, saying it was not testing was for agricultural use, not for military-based use. So what? where are we going to see this testing happening with a $300 million high school about to be open in August, having made those improvements throughout that parcel? Well, you've pointed out uh, the challenge here. Now, there is going to be a little bit of testing underway. We wish there were more, but... There's some important testing going forward this week and presumably next that involves uh, sinking a well, uh, basically uh, drilling a six-inch hole 15 to 20 feet down and taking soil gas samples along the way. Uh, You also, with your question, pointed out uh, implicitly the most important issue, uh, not only... uh, outdoors, but perhaps more importantly, indoors, what is going to be going on by way of the volatization of these volatile organic compounds. Uh, Will they be coming up through the foundation? Will they be coming up along the sides of buildings and uh, intruding into the interior? Will we have an unsafe and unhealthful environment for faculty, staff, and students? as a technical matter, yes. testing can be done around the edges of buildings, and then uh, based on those findings, there can be slant drilling underneath buildings. Ah. And, of course, there needs to also be, um, uh, in my judgment, uh, uh, a real vigorous program of uh, testing um, uh, for uh, uh, air quality inside buildings and outside. So I think we're, we're looking here at the beginning of a very rigorous program of testing before students are allowed to be admitted to that school. And, of course, afterwards there would have to be testing as well. If you just joined us, you're tuned to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is public interest lawyer and former Irvine Mayor and City Council member Larry Agron with a laser-like focus on the comprehensive testing of toxic petrochemicals at Irvine Unified School District's brand new Portola High School. We're talking about what testing can happen with a, a parcel that now with all of these improvements sitting on it. Let's move to what went down at the March 22 Irvine Unified specially uh, convened school district meeting to address this matter of testing, uh, as a, which as a result, new testing has been authorized. Can you tell us a little bit what uh, came out of that meeting and why it's so important for people to show up for the next one? Well, the previous meeting was um, 
critically important. Many, many people turned out, uh, standing room only. It was a school board meeting, well over 100 people in the audience who stayed for a lengthy meeting, where I would say as a kind of bottom line reality, the energy, intelligence, and emotion of participating citizens concerned about the future of that school and their children, of course, um, made the difference and compelled the school uh, district, the school board, to vote for additional testing, uh, testing that had never been done before, and to make sure that it was uh, testing of the kind that the state um, had ordered, but that it would be, uh, instead of drilling 10 wells, uh, we got them, I think, to agree to do at least 16 to 18, possibly as many as 20, uh, for this round of testing. Uh, it showed the, the difference that people power makes. And as the community becomes uh, more and more informed about this, I think they will turn their attention to the results of those tests, the possible need for additional testing, and the all-important risk assessment analysis that the state has ordered as a result of uh, previous findings here. In other words, there has to be a comprehensive site-wide risk assessment analysis submitted by the school district before any students can be admitted. And my guess is that that analysis is going to show there's some real risk of uh, adverse health and safety consequences based on what's there and that there needs to be uh, not only more testing but considerable remediation yes. before that school can be opened. Well, that, as, will be, that will be taking place at future uh, in future meetings. meetings. And, sure. and, and I guess it's not, this is not a scripted moment, folks, but it's, as I'm thinking about this and hearing Larry Agron bring this out, is there's a bit of irony about all the attention about the feng shui of a nearby veterans cemetery. I just want to know what the feng shui, how it gets uh, dealt with, with the, the potential for volatile uh, hazardous waste underneath where students are spending 8, 10, 12 hours a day. That's right. It's uh, a big, a bit ironic big issue. Very important, uh, and uh, you know, it's time for our community to come to grips with it. Yes, people, uh, you know, tend to. I understand this. They tend to believe everything's going along fine, and nobody has to watch the elected officials and and appointed ones, the superintendent and appointed right. ones, and. Uh, that's not so. We have to be vigilant. So, and I know you have uh, you have to head off to meetings shortly. But just as we close, at this point, what is the role? What can, what steps can constituents of Irvine Unified School District take toward improving the oversight of this step taking now? Well, here's what I would do. Uh, there are two uh, entities. One is uh, Irvine Community News and Views, which is a a community newspaper that has been covering this issue. It really broke the story starting about a year ago. Um, people should uh, go to that website uh, to stay uh, informed and advised. That's uh, IrvineCommunityNews.org. And there is uh, another website, uh, Dr. Harvey Liss's Test for Toxics, Test 
for fortoxics.org. Yes. People should go there as well. Stay advised. Uh, and uh, as critical meetings uh, come up, uh, those uh, entities uh, keep people informed. They have to be advised, engaged, and keep an eye on the school board and the city council, for that matter. Um, it couldn't be a, a more important time. Let me just uh, yes. say that what happened in Flint, Michigan, can be avoided here. What Flint, happened, Michigan, we can just, yes, and, and go ahead. Name, give us that list as you close, right? Well, there's Flint, Michigan. There's the Porter Ranch situation. Uh, Belmont High School in Los Angeles went through a similar experience. They didn't uh, open that for 20 years um, because, belatedly, they found the kind of toxic contamination that would be a real threat to teachers, staff, and students at that high school. Uh, let's get it right here in Irvine. We're renowned for our planning, for our protection of health and safety. Let's not blow it now. Okay. Well, I thank you, Larry, for taking the time to be on the show to talk about that. Uh, then just leave us with where, when is the next uh, appointed hour for people to turn out and participate in the the um, next school district-wide meeting? Well, they do have a meeting uh, April 12th. People are always welcome. They can offer their comments under public comments. But uh, I would say uh, go to those websites. Okay. Uh, stay tuned because uh, they're fast-moving events. There may be special meetings, and uh, people need to stay uh, engaged and involved on a day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week basis. Okay. Thank you so much, Larry. This is Larry Agron, who is uh, gracing the aerial, the radio waves today with a, a word on, um, several words and a mind on the comprehensive testing of, of toxic petrochemicals at Irvine Unified School District's brand new Portola District. Thanks for giving us another uh, chance to make a Passover after we looked at this with Harvey Liss and now with the some of the reversals of the state jurisdictions and reconsidering the necessity of testing and, and the vigilance keeping on this for so many years. Larry, thanks for coming back to the show well, today. Well, thank you, and thanks for covering this very important issue, Claudia. All, right. All the best, Larry. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye. Get this mess. I'm the one who made it, I do confess. Oh, my goodness, well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from uh, the bike people of UCI with a hefty roster of bike promotions and education opportunities. And I'm hoping to have UCI's own Dean of Humanities, Professor George Van Den Ebeli, with the scintillating coverage of Belgium in all its current complexity. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. I do confess, yeah, boy. Oh, my goodness, look at this mess. I think I better clean it up. Whoa.